you are listening to Demise, a podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, my own writing as we get back into Birch. We're going to be starting with chapter 21 today, but I have to address a few things about Twitter and the fact that I had to take off my link tray from my, my link tray, my link tree from my bio today, because now links to link tree are banned. So you can't have any link aggregators on the site. Therefore, if you were to go to my Twitter, you would not be able to get to my Amazon account, my podcast, my Substack, etc. So if you're listening to the podcast and you want to follow me on Twitter, now is not the time to do it. As of December 18th, 2022, as I'm recording this, this may change or something, but Right now, my account's locked. I'm not really sure what to do. I've been kind of preparing for this for the past two months and casually deleting old tweets and stuff because eventually, Elon Musk is going to make shit hit the fan. And speaking of Elon Musk, I guess I need to address Dave Chappelle real quick because I want to say last year, whenever his latest stand-up came out, I talked about it briefly on the podcast. I don't remember what I said. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to play devil's advocate. But realistically, as you get older, you find out that all of your idols and people that you like who were famous that you don't know are probably pieces of shit. So (laughs) with Dave Chappelle, he brought Elon Musk out on stage during one of his shows. People booed because it was really tone deaf and Elon Musk is a piece of shit. Beyond that, Dave has been kind of going into a nosedive lately, but not in a Kanye nosedive. No, he's been doing it in such a way that he's been, you know, walking the fence. And not until the Elon incident did I decide, yeah, I can't really defend Dave Chappelle. Because the thing is, is that with the turf thing... It was a very stupid thing to say. I didn't agree with it. I thought the rest of the show was pretty funny, but I also know from listening to Two Bears, One Cave that Dave has been ramping up his trans jokes because of responses that he's gotten from trans people. So a few specials ago, he may have had a few trans jokes. I don't even remember trans jokes in uh, his last few specials up until now. Apparently they were there. But uh, he was ramping it up because people were being more and more hostile towards him. So as a comedian, he felt the need to lash back out. And I think that what should have been happening was a conversation rather than um, an angry response from him. Again, he shouldn't have said, I'm Team Turf, all that dumb shit. He was stupid to say that, and I don't agree with what he said. But then he gets on SNL, and he talks about Kanye, and what's interesting is that people keep calling Dave Chappelle right-wing. I still don't believe that he's right-wing, because he very blatantly bashed both Trump and Herschel Walker, and I don't believe that Dave Chappelle is voting Republican. But that doesn't mean that he can't also be an asshole. And it's kind of like what Louis C.K. said recently, where 
If you don't agree with everyone's ideology on the left, they try to label you a Republican. And that's such a stupid thing to do because it alienates people who you should be on their side on the majority of things, especially when it comes to who you vote for. And the left's biggest issue in the past decade has always been picking a candidate that they think deserves to win rather than the candidate that will win, which they finally did with Biden. You know, people were saying that it was Hillary's turn. And then, yeah, Hillary's turn did not amount to shit. And then we had to suffer through fucking Donald Trump. But what really struck me about the discourse about Dave Chappelle's SNL monologue was the fact that there were people on both sides of the fence that were Jewish that were saying it was anti-Semitic, it wasn't anti-Semitic. And as someone who's not Jewish, all I could do was sit back and listen. I did not contribute to that discourse because I had nothing to add. It's not my fight to battle. I can just stand by the people that I know and love and listen to them and then decide. But essentially, Dave Chappelle is just an asshole, and I'm pretty sure he'll just say anything. I, whether or not he believes it or not, I don't know. But bringing Elon Musk on stage did not win Elon any new fans, and it didn't win Dave any new fans from my perspective. You may be wondering why I'm talking about Elon. I wrote a book called Demise of the Trinity, and one of the Antichrists in that book is a, na- is a man <laughs> named Hardly Freudland. And Freudland owns a media internet-based company that wants to launch satellites into space and completely eliminate competition in internet service providers. And he also contributes to something called the Edison, which is an all-electric vehicle that relies on Wi-Fi. So, I don't like Elon Musk. I didn't write that character with Elon Musk in mind because I'd been writing that book since 2010. I didn't even know who Elon Musk was until like 2017. I've never been a fan of his. Even when Reddit was sucking his dick, I didn't like Elon because I've always seen him as a piece of shit. He's always been an opportunist. He's always been a semi-politician who has no right to really comment on American politics. He's not even from here. So, fuck Elon Musk. I'm done ranting. Let's get into the book. So, chapter 21. In 1992, I went to the house my parents lived in. Not only could I not risk them conceiving me again in this timeline, but I figured my mom deserved a chance to live without that man. I stood at the window, and they sat next to each other, watching TV and holding hands. Expecting to see Dad with a bottle or can, he's sharing a Coke with her. They laughed at Craig T. Nelson, and he kissed her on the cheek. I figured he'd always drank, and they never shared a time like this. Rather than kill him, I decided to give them both a chance to live without me. From that moment, my dad could no longer produce active sperm, and mom would be infertile. Even if they broke up, I couldn't risk them having children. But I came there expecting to disintegrate my father. Instead, I see them happy without me. I went to the side of the garage and sat down to consider what changed. They never told me how they met or started dating. It was like they were always together and he had a bottle superglued to his hand. Lucifer appeared and sat next to me. I hadn't seen him since 86. What did you come here for? he asked. I already know, I said. 
surprised to see your parents get along. And now you're here. I thought you didn't know I existed in 2009. No, I knew. Do you recall a time when your father wasn't a drinker? Not very well, I said. You can't base an assumption that someone is part of the Trinity merely based on when they're born. Children are born, people die, and it's constant. Remember getting hurt as a child? No, I said. Your father took you to work at his garage once, Lucifer said. You were about six. You fell into the pit where the mechanics go to change oil and work under the cars. When your father pulled you out of there, you weren't even crying. It wouldn't have killed you, but a tumble like that should have broken something. I had to test you somehow. You mean after that, I asked. I wrote a letter to your mother posing as her high school sweetheart, Trace. She didn't even read it before your father found it on the kitchen table. Before then, they weren't unhappy. I saw it in retrospect, but I didn't go digging around my memories or history of my family when I obtained the satanic power. Had he no reason to meddle in their lives now? The only reason Dad hurt us was because of me. I was born in the wrong moment. I have to stop here and make you as the audience wonder if Lucifer is telling the truth here. Did he know that Birch was alive and that he was part of the Trinity the whole time? Does Lucifer keep tabs on everybody in the Trinity beforehand? And if so, my question to you as the audience is, why doesn't he tempt all of them? And maybe he does. But why doesn't he try to get all of them to work for him? Early on in life, like with Charles, with Ken Price, why hasn't he made a deal with another human to time their child's birth with another person and the Trinity's death, like with Charles Price and Ken Price? Anyway, without Antichrist, Lucifer still holds influence in the world. I can't rightfully stop him because his presence balances everything. The new generation deserves a chance to find themselves, though. Do you know where the two new bloods are? I asked. Not yet, Lucifer said. I have looked many places, though. Leave them alone, I said. If I even suspect you meddled with one of them, I'll kill them both to restart the cycle. You don't give me much room for evil, Birch. Delilah doesn't find two and a half men that appealing, so I have to watch by myself. Usually she pulls out her HP laptop and goes online to read the news or message boards. Since I didn't watch a single episode until after 2085, when reruns started to air and no new content was created, I promised to watch the show while it's on the air now. This is actually a reference to my own life. So, I wrote my master's thesis on toxic masculinity and two and a half men, and I actually covered it on the podcast, and I'm actually going to be teaching three episodes of Two and a Half Men for my online course, and I recorded a lecture for it that is actually largely based on the notes that I took for my thesis. So, I actually, much like Birch, regret not giving that show a chance when it was actually on the air. I would have loved to have watched it 
You know, that's something that is actually very underrated, I think, to experience something when it's new and it's current and you're part of a phenomenon. It's sad to me that I was snobbish and I didn't participate in watching something like The Office when it was on. You know, I did catch new episodes here and there, but by and large, I usually just watch the DVDs at the, when, whenever they came out. Unlike my time with Lilith, Delilah and I aren't constantly on one another. She doesn't share my love of movies, but I didn't mind the two years she spent learning piano and playing bad notes hours upon hours each day. Her taste in entertainment turned to literature. To my surprise, she doesn't care for Plath, the Bronte sisters, Wolf, or Gaskell. Other than Flannery O'Connor, Delilah got really into Joan Didion and Hunter S. Thompson. Thus, while I lie on the couch with my eyes on the TV... She's on the porch reading. Does this show have the same plot every episode, Delilah asked. Want me to turn it off, I ask. Sorry. I don't mean to criticize what you like. I'm interested why you like it, though. It was an interesting middle ground of situational comedy for the time. A lot of people liked it for the wrong reasons. New Americans recognized it as a critique of masculinity and societal expectations. Are you reading that out of an encyclopedia, she asked. One day, I'll make you sit down and watch it from start to finish. You'll have to tie me up and force my eyes open. It's been 19 years since I killed Arthur Lindsay and Aidan Zavala. It's been a docile couple of decades for me. I haven't looked for the new kids in the Trinity and hope they never show up. Jonathan Ziegler, Delilah reads. Hmm. I look at her screen. It's just an article about this guy who made a bunch of movie, bunch of money from his internet investments. I thought the name sounded interesting. I know him, I say. He sold his soul to Satan. Ziegler apparently bought the servers that Walter Grone built in the 80s, though he didn't resume the central network moniker because I dissolved the company. Instead, he held on to the property until 1993 when he sold them to Fonda Communications, the article mentions investments in Amazon, Apple, and Edison, and features a picture of him. The blonde pompadour is replaced by a close-cut corporate hairdo with a short goatee. The soul patch is a little bold for my taste. He's handsome, Delilah says. I glare at her for a moment before scrolling down to see he's planning a new security company that offers protection for the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates of the world. Knowing Lucifer, all of this adds up to something. I shouldn't have spared Ziegler. The bottom of the article mentions his wife, Nicole Ziegler. That means the piece of shit totally ignored me and went after her. He must have used some real charm because she wouldn't try cocaine again after what I did to her brain. So I guess you have a reason to leave the house tomorrow, Delilah asks. I need to speak to him, I say. And his wife? I mean, if she's there too, might as well. Your heart rate changed when you read her name. You know her, too. Other than the fact that she bore a son who was in the Trinity, we had a thing one night. Why just one night? I didn't want her to live her life in danger. Was she any good? Why do you ask? Because if you liked anything about her, you would have kept her for yourself. Delilah bites my ear and puts her laptop down. After I dropped off Nicole, I went back to Earth-1 and dealt with Carrie. I wonder how Clayton carried on my legacy. 
When I came back, I didn't feel a need to help here. Despite hyping myself about protecting the world and not sitting on my ass, that's exactly what I did. I don't feel too guilty about it when Delilah has her hand around my cock. Stop thinking, she says. You can fix everything tomorrow. With chapter 22, things get to be a little bit more odd. Ziegler and Nicole come inside their downtown condo they keep for the sake of parties and quick recoveries. Their actual home is a five-bedroom mansion on 150 acres in Harris County. I should invest in an apartment like this for when I need to come to town, too. Of course, I haven't been to Atlanta since 86. Why bother? While Nicole doesn't recognize the intruder sitting on their chase lounge, Ziegler's expression betrays that he definitely remembers me. How long should I wait before restoring Nicole's memories and destroying their marriage? There's a notion of synchronicity in the universe, I say. I've been alive long enough to long dispel any notion of coincidence. Should I call the police? Nicole asks. They can't help us, Ziegler says. See, that's a smart guy, I point. But I wonder if they're, if you're smart enough to know why I'm here. Who is this? Nicole asks. Jesus. Ziegler closes his eyes. Why is this happening now? Okay, Birch, cut the shit. Nicole, you should go to the bedroom while we talk. Actually, I beckon to her, why doesn't she stay? Her eyes dart to him as she recalls the night we spent together. She sees the moment I decided to spare Ziegler and reveal Satan's earth form. In these years she spent it, as his pretty housewife, Nicole survived the doomed existence I saved her f- from killing. By Nicole killing. walks over Charles, to the kitchen I know how to, to find something to drink in the fridge. When I erased her memory, I thought me. she'd finished school. While he was once an intimidating presence worthy of a cheesy job. 1980s villain role, instead she went Jonathan's back to attempt to emulate Lucifer's and he became looks. the new Walter Come off as posing. Combined. All he ever wanted was money. Oh, Birch, I've been looking, she he says. Truthfully, God I don't know of anyone it. else in the Trinity. Stop flexing your you power. You likely disrupted the natural says. order when I get you appeared in 86 Don't ruin my life, others. You were supposed Stop to talking die in the dialogue you stole from Miami Vice. Why would I let you survive Ask this Lucifer. long and ruin your life There's no now. reason you should suspect I'm here for two new additions to the Trinity. I might destroy I your you whole life just because you don't want me to. Fuck it, Nicole says. Barry and Birch. Anything I need to be worried about, I ask. He quit being a crook when he gave up coke, Nicole says. Everything I'm doing is legal and fair, Ziegler says. Everything you did in 86 fixed my life. I gave up selling coke and went legit. This cannot be that simple, though. It seems like you were expecting trouble all this time and you're disappointed you can't find any. Ziegler isn't wrong. He sold a soul to Satan, though. And I can't trust anything he tells me without verification. Just because he's unaware of others in the Trinity doesn't mean they don't exist. Just kill him, Nicole says. I'll get all his assets and you won't have to worry. That is not a terrible idea, I say. But I don't need to kill you for that to happen. Something tells me you're splitting up soon. And all the assets you gained since you married Nicole will be split in two. Hold on, Ziegler says. What will it take for you to erase her memory again? Are you seriously putting your wife's brain chemistry on the line here? Yeah, what the fuck, Nicole says. That evil is still part of Ziegler, 
He's just a better actor now. If I wasn't here, Nicole gave any indicator she wanted to take half his net worth, she'd be chopped up in the bathtub before he packed a bag. You know, Lucifer's contract stipulates that he protect you, I say. But it only extends to your life. As long as you're still alive, he's not going to stop me from hurting you. I could erase your memory to the point you can't remember how to speak. I've done it before. I know I'm worth nothing to you, Ziegler says. But I'm not hurting anybody. Neither was Charles Price when I shot him, I say. You have too much potential to hurt the world now. Then give me everything, Nicole says. Leave the country and Birch might spare your life. Nicole isn't necessarily the lesser of two evils. I might have shared a moment with her years ago, but she did raise Ken Price. Her hands weren't clean then either. Ziegler hasn't initiated the apocalypse or even hurt the economy. If anything, he's the right amount of evil. Here's what you're going to do, I say. I want you to build Section 8 housing and fund a community kitchen for the lower class. Once you establish everything, add a clinic for free health care. If you're going to pursue money, then you're putting it back into the people who need it. I'll start making calls tonight, Ziegler nods. As for you, I point at Nicole, you're still married to this guy. If you want out, you're not getting a penny of his. I'll take care of you. But, if you want to keep all this, I suggest counseling. The good news is, if you get your life together with God, you won't have to see him in the afterlife. Oh, fuck that. You don't decide my life for me. All right, then. Nicole rubs above her left breast and squints. Before she questions what's going on, her feet slip on the kitchen floor. A heart attack is fitting for an ex-cokehead. Ziegler crosses his legs and rolls his eyes as he lights a cigarette. You should have shown up years ago, he says. It may seem like Ziegler is about to be a big part of this book, and maybe he is, but I want you to question everything that you read from this point onward. So in chapter 23, it starts with, I take Phantasm down the driveway and we head down the road going toward the Piggly Wiggly. From the top of the hill, I can see all the people around the church praying with Pastor Sanders. Bunch of fools. A man leaning against a Ford Ranger smokes a cigarette and watches them. Not many of the people here have vehicles, and they don't really need them. Phantasm gets closer, and I see that it's my dad on the other end of that Marlboro. I haven't seen him since 92 when I checked in on my parents. He looks younger than he should, definitely healthier skin than before he died. There's a thinning spot in the hair around his crown. I should keep writing, yet I'll regret having never said anything. Morning, I say. Good morning, he nods. Nice horse. My old man raises horses. I can't even remember the last time I rode one. You passing through, I ask. Well, I'm up here looking for work, he says. Since my wife passed, I can't stand living in that house no more. Your wife passed, I ask. Cancer. She was the sweetest lady you'd ever meet. I wouldn't know. She let him beat the hell out of us so long. Nothing kind about standing there as your drunk husband takes his fury out of you. We don't have a garage in town, I say. How'd you know I was a mechanic? Oh shit, I'm late. He gets to live while mom died early. 
I don't feel adoration for either of my parents, so I can't mourn her when I already lost both of them. Why does he get a second chance, though? I should force him to have a heart attack now. But he hasn't done anything wrong in this timeline. I'm not even his son anymore. Somehow, I exist without parentage. Surely that means the events that led to me supposedly destroying the world in 2140 still occur on some other Earth. Makes me think of Back to the Future. If Marnie went back in time and wasn't successful, then he wouldn't exist because his parents wouldn't be together, but that means he wouldn't be able to go back in time, and his Calvin persona wouldn't exist either. So everything would just go back to normal. Yet, I'm riding a horse away from a man who at one point beat my mom to death, and I put a knife right into his chest. In this version, my mom, my dad <laughs> never hurt her and never fathered me. For some reason, I'm not content with his happiness. It means that I led to his demise. Without ever having a son, the Abercrombies had a happy life together. So, everything from this point onward is in italics, and I'll let you know when it's not in italics. Mom puts raisin bran and a Diet Coke on the table for my breakfast. Since we don't drink coffee, I have to get caffeine from soda before school. She has the news playing in the living room, but I try to focus on finishing my Algebra 2 homework before we have to go. By 9, I'm going to be hungry again and have to chug the water from the plastic bottle I keep in my book bag, but I rarely finish my cereal. It's like my stomach is a sensitive virgin every morning. Kay, Mom says, you might want to go out the back and wait in the car. Your dad just pulled in. Dad opens the door leading to the garage and flings a Budweiser bottle onto the floor. I try pushing myself away from the table so I could run to the sliding glass door, but he grabs my arm and forces me onto the broken glass. Our boy has sins to pay for, Dad says. People he killed, people he hurt. They ain't coming back from the dead, are they, boy? And you're both next, I say. The room fills with flames and I wake up hearing their screams still fading in my ears. There's a high pitch, like a mosquito tone ringing in the bedroom. Delilah doesn't move when I get out of bed. From the high window I look down into our front yard and ground myself in the reality that I'm still in Lookout Mountain. What if I was successful in killing myself on that beach? The new timelines are where God sends me. Whenever I'm successful in dying, he clearly doesn't want me to come home. The best way to keep me out of heaven is to keep me alive. Birch is asking a question that the reader should be asking. What if he was successful in killing himself on the beach? That means that wherever he is, it's not life. It's an afterlife of some sort, and it's certainly not heaven or hell. So maybe he's in purgatory, or he's stuck in his own mind... And he's never going to get out of it. Maybe. You know, today on Substack I wrote about this. And if you're not reading my Substack, you can go to patrickattaway.substack.com and read my poetry and my essays. And occasionally I post some fiction on there. But today I talked about the fact that I've been thinking about writing more of this universe and resisting for the sake of discipline. You know, discipline is very 
it's not just writing every day. It's not just following a schedule. Discipline is also telling yourself that you can't do something. Not because you're unable to, but because you shouldn't do it for the sake of quality. And I'm not writing any more of this stuff because I'm concerned about the quality declining and affecting how people perceive the earlier works. I don't want to write 10 books with all these different characters from the same universe and have people get to book five and say, this sucks. And then they think, well, maybe all the other ones suck too. So on top of that, you know, I was thinking if I ever did bring Birch back, it would be in 2147 because that would be seven years after 2140. And that would be the year of Jubilee in a sense. So if you ever see Birch again in the future, it might be in a novel called Year of Jubilee or some bullshit like that, but I don't have any plans. I don't even have plans to write more Nero right now because, you know, the the response to the podcast was very minimal. Not that anyone said, oh, this sucks. It was just that people didn't really listen to it so much. And people are slowly listening to it since I posted it, sure, but... You know, it would have been nice if when I was promoting it on Twitter that people followed up and they checked it out, but instead they didn't, which, you know, goes to show you that people are full of shit online. Even when you present them with something completely free, they're not going to bother to spend any time on it. Anyway, rant over. Why do you never speak to me, I ask? You let me abuse my power in ways I never intended. Every time I try to put good out there, you let me commit some act that's equally evil. Is that the duality of man? Are we not capable of only being one thing? We have to be both. Birch? Delilah turns in bed. He's not going to give you any answers, so go back to sleep. I never had nightmares with Lilith. No dreams at all. As long as she took care of me before I went to sleep, I woke up the next day fully rested. Delilah doesn't quite have that magic. I need to get out of here, I say, away from this whole fucking world. If you come back to bed, I'll spoon you. I went to 1986 and killed nine people, Delilah. I'm not seeing how I improved much of anything. What do you want, Birch? You can't change the course of mankind. It's up to their free will what they do with that information. It's not just that. I still feel like I'm doing Satan's bidding somehow. Delilah throws a pillow at me. She knows I don't like to be grabbed and pulled, so that's the next best thing. When I turn around, her shirt is off. Dad walked in the house drunk in the evening, but never so early in the morning. When I grab Delilah by the shoulder and take her left breast to my mouth, my nails probably pinch her too tight, but she doesn't tell me to stop. I want to put my other hand on her throat and bite down hard enough to draw blood. Instead, I pull her legs open and go to her clit with my mouth. A couple of fingers inside of her, and she's pushing her thighs against my ears as she breathes heavy. From behind, she says. Then I want on. Her fingertips run down my spine and she whispers unintelligibly in my ear. Fucking her relieved a lot of my anger, but there's still so much from so many years. As strong as my pelvis is, Delilah says, you need to do something about your rage. 
I can't walk into bars and start fights. I'll end up killing everyone. Why are you such a delusioned pacifist? You told me about fighting police officers and killing security guards. Most of them will go to heaven. I'm disgusted by my constant exploitation of power, I say. If I go too far, I might destroy the planet again. Maybe that's the faith the world deserves. If God's servant cannot find peace of mind, you need to at least come to terms with your father's abuse. It's been almost 200 years, Birch. The house looks cleaner than when I left. The yard is mowed and there are no potholes in the driveway. Instead of parking his Ford in the garage, he's letting it sit outside as if telling everyone who drives by that a man lives here. He's inside watching TV and notices me me watching from the front window. He waves and gets up from the recliner. Before we can speak, I put both my hands on his shoulders and let the memories out. My childhood, the nights he terrorized us, watching him beat and rape mom to death. The knife ending his life, my journey to South Carolina, my numerous suicide attempts, everything I've lost since I left this house, the times I entered hell, seeing his soul as soon as I first smelt the burning stone of Lucifer's domain, Sarah, Holner, New America, Mount Venom, the men and women I killed, and the nightmares where he still haunts me. Whatever he's trying to say as he braces himself against the door frame sounds like a dog chewing on a still-breathing rabbit. Sliding to his knees, Dad starts banging his head against the wood. I kick him back to keep him from hurting himself too much. I'm here to do that. I came back and let you have a second chance, I say. You should have stayed in Winston. Kept your fucking face away from me. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us. You don't deserve heaven. Ripping off his shirt, I press my palm to his stomach and apply heat. His skin burns beneath mine as my dear father tries crying out the, the prayer. I'd melt his lips together, but I want him to tell me something. By the way, if you've read my previous books, you may remember... A certain scene involving a certain someone putting their hand on someone's chest or stomach and burning it. Where'd you bury her? I ask. I see that I've hurt you, but that wasn't me, he says. I'm not a drinker. Never hit my wife. We tried to have a child, but it just never happened. I saw you, I stand up. I came here in 1992. I think I wanted to kill you both then. You look happy, though. When I saw how you were before I was born, I realized that if I hadn't come into your lives, you, sh- you you both wouldn't be dead. She wouldn't be bled out on your bedroom floor, and you wouldn't be so drunk that you couldn't feel a knife in your fucking chest, so I sterilized you. Kept you so happy not to have a son, didn't it, Dad? See? He backs away on the carpet. We wanted a baby. I wanted a little girl. We were going to call her Kay after my grandmother, but I leaned down and hell's flames pour from my eyes and lips. I'd like to end his life so painfully in this moment. He named me after his grandmother. Boys in school told me I had a girl's name, and he couldn't even say it when he beat me. 
He always called me boy. That's my name, I say. K. Abercrombie. The devil, he says. You're not my boy. You're a demon. I am what you created, dad. Not that it's a super original line, but after reading I Am What You Created, I needed to see if I released... I I know that I didn't release this before Kenobi came out, but of course I wrote this before Kenobi came out. So I went to the original manuscript from the first draft, and originally this was chapter 35, and so I looked at chapter 35 and the created date was February 8th, 2022. Therefore, I wrote something (laughs) before Star Wars did, technically. Burning him alive will only send him back to her. Once he tells me where he buried Mom, I intend to make him suffer through hell while still living. After all, this would be like premature ejaculation. I want to savor his misery. Where is Mom buried, I ask. West Georgia Christian Park, near the tree line. Atlanta and Lookout Mountain are off limits to you. I'm taking away your house, your truck, and donating all your savings to the battered women's shelter in Carrollton. You ever shack up with a woman, go near a child, or even ask for a penny? I'm going to make you a vegetable and put you in a nursing home where they'll feed you puree, beets, and peas. Touch a drop of alcohol, and you won't even get that. If you're my son, he says, I know your pain, and I apologize. Once I set him down in the front yard, the house turns to ash. The Ford Ranger rusts and the wheels explode. Though he's sobbing now, I hope he cried harder when he lost Mom. She deserved the mourning I couldn't give her. Admittedly, I'm marveling at my destruction when a siren blares behind me. The Douglas County Sheriff gets out of his gold-colored sedan and squawks something on his radio. Y'all okay? The sheriff asks. Dad shakes his head and waves his hand as if warning the officer to go away. That's not something you do to get a cop to leave, of course. The sheriff approaches me and looks at my face, so he's able to identify me even if I vanished into thin air. Boy, you look just like Elijah, he says. He your nephew or something? No, Dad says. You have any ID on you? My name is Birch, I say. That your legal name? No. It's K. Abercrombie. Nobody calls me that, though. Not since 2009, anyway. So, you two are related? The sheriff looks at Dad. Anyway, what the hell happened here? I just drove by this place 20 minutes ago and it was standing. And that truck sure as hell wasn't like that. Got a call from the people across the street about a domestic disturbance. I figured Elijah was just playing the TV too loud. The sheriff's car starts smoking from the flames I sent to his engine. He curses and calls for a fire department dispatch and backup. His radio starts crackling as I disengage the communications as soon as I saw him. Officer, I say. You have a family at home? He turns with his hand on his sidearm. Darkening hazel eyes tell me he's figuring out something unusual is afoot. This stranger showed up in his buddy's lawn and somehow fucked up everything. Now, 
I'm threatening his wife and kids. He has to figure out how to stop me, but he can't because some, someone capable of all this destruction is dangerous and likely impenetrable. You want to use your cell phone to call them, I ask? After you call for someone to pick you up and your new assailant, I point at Dad and tap on the sheriff's handcuffs. Perhaps going to prison for destruction of police property will be good for him. I try to remember where the cemetery Dad mentioned is near Carrollton and materialized near four-lane highway on the way to Villarica. This is based on a real cemetery, by the way. Not one where my family's buried, though. I never tried to figure out who found my parents' remains or who arranged their funeral proceedings. When I was in South Carolina, I didn't even try to find their obituaries online. Despite my hatred for both of them, I feel a need to see where Mom's remains lie. I won't return once Dad is buried next to her. Passing the Bakers and Attaways along the row near the tree line, I finally land at the Abercrombie section. With Elijah Abercrombie printed on the gravestone, I see Mary Jones Abercrombie. Her friends and mother called her Jonesy when she got married, though Dad called her May. There are fresh flowers on top of the outline where her coffin rests. A couple of things I need to say here. Number one, I was interested in my family tree, so I did research and actually went to different cemeteries where my distant relatives in my direct lineage, of course, were buried. And I noticed something on two of the gravesites. There were stones on two gravestones on two separate cemeteries, and they were both for men. And apparently... Uh, Jewish people do this for dead relatives when they visit their grave, but I'm guessing people in the South do it too. And who knows how long those stones were there, but, you know, with wind and everything, it makes you wonder, you know, if they were there recently, and I just missed them. What you need to realize about this novel that I've been coming to terms with myself is that Birch is a revenge novel, it's a novel where he gets to go back and take out his rage on everyone who's ever wronged him. And that makes you wonder if this is real or not. And if it is, it's a hell of a way to get your kicks, man. I mean, he's getting to do everything he's ever wanted and live his life the way he's, ever, he's wanted. And So I want you to keep that in mind because things are going to change rapidly as we move through this. I pull a smooth stone from my pocket and place it above her name before squatting down on the bricks around the grave. There's a trail of ants leading to a red hill on Dad's side. Watching them makes me itch. Now would be a good time to cry and think about the drives when she'd play a George Strait cassette and sing along off-key. Despite that I know she's near me again, her soul isn't. How can I get closure from this when I'm not feeling a fucking thing? If I could actually change my life, I'd go back and tell her to leave Dad and take me with her. Let one of my uncles take care of me. They didn't give a shit about me. I'm too much of a black sheep. So in chapter 24, we have a flashback as Birch is thinking back on his life. And this is actually... A part where, you know, I mentioned earlier that chapter 23 was originally chapter 35, and you can see that I cut out a lot from the original manuscript, 
and I edited the good stuff together and then rewrote a bunch of stuff, etc. And I think that this was in the original draft. The day I met Lilith, jumped on a moving train from the hood of a Ford Mustang and killed Lucifer's earthly body, I completed a mission I didn't even know God tasked to me. I also had a lot more power than I ever thought possible. For a guy who didn't win fights through strength, never weighed more than 150 pounds, and had one girlfriend his entire life, gaining the satanic power in Lilith was like a homeless man getting the keys to a fully stocked yacht. All because I was born the moment Arthur killed Aiden in 1993. After Veronica died in my apartment, I definitely didn't want to go back. It's not like I needed any of my possessions anymore, and I don't know what happened to anything I owned. It wasn't the first time I left my home without even packing a bag. I did know I wanted to go back to Philly and stay the hell away from Atlanta. This portion of the chapter explains what happened in the time between book... Well, it's not officially book one and and book two or part one and part two, but Demise of the Trinity is kind of split into two books, and uh, it ends with Lilith's chapter, and then the next part begins with, I think, Murray's chapter, where he's talking about training Alan. Lilith drove us to I-75, and my only directive was to go to Philadelphia. For an hour, we sat next to each other without speaking. I avoided looking at her. She was the most I'd looked at a lot of women with lust entity I'd seen. This is a a note... (laughs) This is a weird thing to read out loud because you can't see the italics, but the sentence goes, She was the most, and then in italics, I looked at a lot of women with lust, and then in italics, entity I'd seen. That's a reference to Jimmy Carter because in the 70s, Jimmy Carter gave an interview with Playboy magazine, and he said, I looked at a lot of women with lust, and people, for some reason, went crazy about that. She was for most men. Arthur was able to kidnap her from Ken Price without trying to fuck her, so clearly he was either wiser or more defective than the rest of us. In my experience at that point, women did not want a guy like me looking at them at all. She just pledged her soul to me, though. I'm aware now that Lucifer sent Lilith to me with the directive to keep me occupied while Murray raised Alan Price. Now... I could have sent her back to hell and stuck my nose in everyone's business, and I would have eventually sensed Alan's presence. No matter how powerful a man is, he will never turn down the potential to fuck a hot person. There are a lot of men who will have entire affairs with women much less attractive than their wives, and I was a free agent trying to heal the memories of losing Veronica, who I knew as Vicky. A red flag didn't pop up for her either. On the way up the interstate, I tried out my new power. First, I conjured a toothpick to see if I could actually make things. Lilith chuckled at my amazement and offered no guidance. Why tell a kid he has a loaded gun if he might use it on you? Then I made an iPhone. I knew that if I was going to Philly, I needed a new home. I also needed to review my bank account and see if I could magically create new money. By the time I got into the city after midnight... I had a plot of land big enough for a house and horse stalls. The horses came later, of course. Making small objects was easy enough, but I didn't know if I could make a house. 
walls, a ceiling, doors, plumbing, electricity, Wi-Fi, and all the other necessities like appliances. Lilith parked in the grass and waited. We could get a hotel room, she said. Might be fun. I want a place where we don't have to leave, I said. But I want a house that's not like anything I've seen before. Well, Google some pictures of modernism architecture. A woman who used to have sex with Adam before Eve told me to use Google as if I was an, as, I, as if I was the old fogey. That's how we ended up with a one-story house with a wide exterior, large windows, a foyer with a dining room table, three bedrooms, a kitchen in the same room as the living area, a back porch, and stainless steel appliances. Took me less than 60 seconds. I want to point out as the author that the detail about the three bedrooms is new because of surviving new America because Sarah and Holner go to live with Birch. And originally when I imagined Birch's house, it just had one bedroom. When we went inside, Lilith kept looking at me as if I was supposed to do something. I didn't intend for her to live with me long and one of the bedrooms would be for her until she figured out where to go next. Typically, men are a lot more forward with me, Lilith said. I'm going to try making us something to eat, I said. Do you have any preference? I'll have whatever you have. She bent over the marble counter and placed her chin into her palm as if enthralled by my presence. Given that it was late and I wanted to go to sleep soon, I didn't need anything too tangy or spicy. Two grilled cheese sandwiches and bowls of chicken and dumplings appeared. In high school, my favorite lunches were grilled cheese, chicken and dumplings, country fried steak, and chicken noodle soup. They used a really thick broth that was unlike what you bought in a can at the store. You could spill Campbell's and splatter it all over the place, but this soup was almost like syrup. This is true, by the way, and one of my classmates and I were reminiscing over that really good chicken noodle soup and good chicken and dumplings that my school lunchroom had. And it's my understanding that because of Michelle Obama, after we graduated, um, they changed the menu and they had weird things like whole wheat Pop-Tarts. Pragmatic might not be the right word to describe you, Lilith took her plate. Basic. I said. I'm fairly simple. I'd offer to make us breakfast, but you probably want to do that too. You don't have to wait for me to have breakfast, I said. You can do anything you want. Like lying next to you until you wake up? Hmm. My mouth was full. Oh, Lilith said. I figured you understood this arrangement. I belong to you now. You can do whatever you want with me. I'm not going to force you to be my concubine, I said. You can leave tomorrow if you want. I'll help you find a place to live or whatever. I don't want that. You freed me from Satan's hold on me and, and saved me from God's wrath. I'm indebted to you, Birch. Let me stay. There are three rooms. We only need one. Are you fucking serious right now? She couldn't compute how I wasn't going to use her. Most people would be grateful for their autonomy. Most men would immediately accept Lilith's offer, though. I was skeptical because she had other advantages to gain from slobbering on my knob. Of course, Prudence couldn't get over our height difference and ran off with Nero, so obviously my superpowers can't woo every lady. 
For centuries, I have seduced a lot of men, kings, millionaires, lawyers, murderers, and a few women, too. None of them turned me down. You're not that unique, Birch. If I laid on this counter with my legs spread and told you to eat me, you would. God made me to sue Adam and produce children for him. He ended up rejecting me because I was too much for him. Then I made a deal with Satan so I could make every man in the world want me for eternity. I will not be rejected again. Admittedly, I felt powerless and put upon. It was almost as if I didn't have a choice in whether we fucked. She was going to have me regardless of whatever coy act I wanted to play. I was attracted to Lilith, but not to the idea of her being with me for reasons other than wanting me as I was. I pulled the blanket over my head and lied on my stomach facing away from her. She was only a foot away without her clothes. Despite her staring at the back of my head, I was tired enough to fall asleep. For the first time since I'd lost Veronica, I didn't dream at all. Instead of waking next to Lilith, I was alone, but heard the shower running. I didn't even really know what the bathroom looked like. I put on a fresh Tears for Fears tour shirt with matching black pajama pants before heading to the living room to try out my new TV. I didn't get five minutes into the skin I live in before Lilith opened her towel and ripped Roland Orzabal's face in half. Considering it usually took me ten minutes to finish at minimum, I was done in two minutes, which embarrassed the fuck out of me before I realized I could go again. I could do anything with Satan's power after all. Lilith embracing me in hell felt like a genuine gesture, but charm was her weapon. What happened over the course of 18 years was was distraction and not a relationship built on truth. Having spent more time with Delilah, I pondered the sincerity of our experience. Am I allowing myself to live in deception? The idea that Satan chose my fate from discovering my place in the Trinity to send Delilah from another timeline and hell playing a constant role in my life makes me think the only time I'm in control is when I'm alone. Okay, so here's something that I have decided in this moment. After looking ahead at the next few chapters, I am deciding instead of skipping them and getting to another part of the book, they're too integral to what happens next. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything else. I'm not going to explain anything else. This book is for you to interpret as you will, and I expect you, the listener, if you're interested in what happens next, to go read the book. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the author. What a novel idea, right? I'm currently reading Walk Me to the Distance by Percival Everett in my free time, so I might end up reading that on the podcast at some point soon. I don't know what I'm going to be doing because I was planning on doing Birch for the next few weeks. Well, the next few episodes at least. But uh, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want you to... Go read the book for yourself, because this is not an audiobook podcast, and what I've done for most of this episode is just read, and I am done doing that for now. So, I might read something else that I've written, I might revisit something, I might read something new, I might read Walk Me to the Distance by Percival Everett, but this is the last episode of Birch on the podcast, I can say with all uh, confidence that I have covered it to the best of my ability, And now it's up to you to 
find out what happens next on your own. I hope that you've enjoyed it, though. I really appreciate you listening. And if this is the first series that you've listened to on the podcast, please go back and listen to the others. I would really appreciate it. But until next week, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy life. Happy life. <laughs>